Well, what is it that you were waiting for? At this time of COVID-19, we're all waiting for things to return to normal, aren't we? (laughs) We're waiting for when there's going to be no red zone or green zone. And we can fill every single pew without having to count and say, oh, too many, over to the hall. We're waiting for when we can sing, when we can hug, when we can shake hands. We're waiting for when kids can sit in a real classroom with their teachers face to face. When we can travel freely around New South Wales and Australia and even overseas. When you don't need to wear a mask and check in with your phone and fear being told that you're a close contact of a random stranger and spend two weeks stuck in your bedroom. Every morning we tune in at 11am to hear Gladys tell us the number of tests, the cases, the infections in the community and the number of jabs and we keep waiting and waiting and waiting. Our state and our nation and our world is waiting and waiting for the day that things can return to normal. And yet there is hope. There's hope, especially with news that when vaccination numbers reach a certain milestone, that this will happen or that will happen or whatever, and we'll make progress. And we're waiting for, and waiting for that day with anticipation, aren't we? But it's not the first time in history that we've had to wait for good news. Imagine if we were at a time of war. We're waiting to hear that, that maybe we had had victory and our troops could come home. But for God's people in the Old Testament times, they've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the coming of the Messiah. God's people had been waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is to come. In terms one and two of this year, as we were looking through 1 Kings, we saw tantalising moments when God's king did great things. David represented all of God's people by defeating Goliath, didn't he? So that one man's victory brought victory for all. And he united God's people, making Jerusalem the heart of God's land, bringing hope and future hope for the house of God. Then his Solomon, his son, built the temple, brought power and riches and wisdom to God's kingdom. And all of this gave us a taste for life under the rule of a great king, a great anointed one, a great messiah. But David and Solomon, and especially the kings that followed, did not bring complete fulfilment, not at all. They gave us a a tantalising taste of what could come. But it left God's people hungry for God's rule. Hungry for God's rule especially as they were dragged into exile and then they lived under the difficult rule of kings who did not follow the Lord. They weren't waiting every day for good news or every week or every month. They had been waiting for decades, for centuries, for the time when they would have their Messiah and you'd think they would give up. But then there was a glimmer of hope. Maybe the ultimate true Messiah was finally coming. Maybe this was the generation that would see him and follow him and enjoy life in his kingdom. Well, as we saw in the first two chapters of Matthew's gospel, this time had in fact come. Joseph, who was married to Mary, who bore Jesus, was told that this child would be 
God with us. Wow. (laughs) That's what they're waiting for. Chapter 1, verse 23. And then last week, as we looked at chapter 2, we saw that the evil king Herod asked the Jewish leaders to confirm what the wise guys, or wise men, from east had told them about the king. And they read from Micah 5 that the ruler will come from Bethlehem and he will be a shepherd for God's sheep. Wow, it must be close. Then Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt with Jesus, moved to Galilee, and that's all that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel for what must be more than a quarter of a decade, quarter of a century. It kind of makes you wonder what Joseph and Mary must have been thinking in all that time as they watched their child grow up. He's the coming king, but he's still just sitting back doing carpentry in Nazareth or whatever it is that we don't know that he did, but the blanks are there. Surely he's going to do something soon. But with every day of same, same, it must have tested their patience. Imagine Joseph. He gets all these dreams and he gets told all this stuff. And it's like, man, we've just celebrated our son's 25th birthday. When's it all going to happen? And then something did happen. Because we read today that in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, in those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. This guy called John started preaching in the wilderness, which is the desert. He started preaching in the wilderness. And you see, this wilderness was the desert that was down in the really, really hot bit of Israel, near the Dead Sea. Super hot, super desert. But because it was the desert, it sort of struck a chord with God's people because it was the place where God would often speak in a special way. He spoke through the prophets there, like he spoke also when he brought the law to God's people. This setting here of the, of the desert, of the wilderness, must have made them think, ah, I think something might be happening here. But more than that, what he said in his preaching was very important. Verse 2, he said, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John called people to repent, to do a U-turn, to turn back to God. Now that's not that new. It's sort of what Old Testament prophets had been doing for a really long time. Turn back to God, turn back to God. So in a sense, what he's doing isn't really rocket science. God's made it very clear about how his people should live as part of his kingdom. They weren't told that if you live this way, then I'll let you into my kingdom. That's not the way it worked with God. The law and all this stuff was a way of showing you the right way to live as a person who was already part of that kingdom, saved by grace. But over the centuries, God's people strayed. They strayed far away from him and in the end God threw them out of the promised land and sent them off into exile. And then when they finally came back, life was never really quite the same. And the problem was that the rulers of God's people just kept going off track. Some went okay, but most were no good. And then finally, the person who's effectively the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, is now calling Israel to repent of her sins and turn back to God. It was a call to the whole nation, including, of course, the religious leaders. But it was a call to the individuals as well. 
the individuals who heard this message and knew that they personally needed to return to God. Anyone today who wants to be friends with God must repent. We all need to turn from our sins to God. If you're not yet friends with God, if maybe you've just sort of been coming to church for a while and you've slipped along and you're here and you're kind of... uh, and you think, I don't know if I've ever done that. Maybe you're watching tonight on the live stream, you're flicking through Facebook and you suddenly get stuck on this guy who's preaching at you right now and you're listening and you're thinking... I don't know if I've ever actually repented before. You need to do it. It's the basic thing you do. You say sorry to God. You say, I'm sorry for my sins. I don't want to do them anymore. I want to come to you. It's a drastic step. It's a radical step. But it's foundational if you're a follower of Jesus. So in that sense, the message of John the Baptist is as true and relevant for us today as it was back then. But it's also worth noting that what was happening at this point in time with John the Baptist was a bit different and a bit special. And we're going to try and unpack that a bit as we look at this in a moment. Because his message of repentance came because he said, the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. It's kind of like saying the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God is near, like we say summer is near. Summer's just round the corner. Or holidays are coming soon. It's that kind of thinking. You're getting ready. You're setting yourself up for it. It's an expectation of an event in the future that is coming. Which means we need to get ready for it. Or at least they needed to get ready for it at that time. They needed to get ready for it. They needed to make changes for it. And that's what John was telling Israel. John told Israel to get ready. Get ready. God's rule, the kingdom of heaven, is about to come. So get yourself ready for that day. That's the message he was saying. Get ready by repenting of your sins, turning to God, because the clock is counting down and you want to be on the right side of history. But just as Matthew records the punchline of John's preaching, he also reveals that this is a very important moment in time. We read in chapter 3, verse 3, that the prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. Matthew is telling us that Isaiah, this awesome prophet of the Old Testament, actually had John the Baptist in mind as he wrote his prophecy. He was thinking about this desert preacher, John the Baptist, when he talked about the dawning of a new age. And you can see how it matches up with John the Baptist. In the wilderness, tick. A voice shouting, tick. But what does Isaiah say that he's preaching? Repentance. No. He says he's preparing the way for the Lord's coming. The Lord, God himself, is coming to his people. The Lord is coming to his people. More than just the Messiah, the Lord himself was arriving. And this shouty guy in the desert is the one who's saying he's coming now. And that time is now. Or at least, as the first verse of this chapter started, in those days. This was the time when the action was happening. Kind of like the the rumbling of thunder in the distance before a storm. You know that it's coming. You can hear it's coming. 
You're getting ready for it. And, well, John was kind of like that rumbling thunder. (laughs) He's the guy. And you're thinking, it's coming. It's coming. And this, as we read this, should almost make the hair on the back of our neck stand up. It's like, here it is. It's coming soon. You can hear it coming. That's what we should be feeling as we get this message from John. But now Matthew's told us about John's message. He now tells us about John's attire, what he's wearing and and what he's eating. (laughs) Verse 4, it says that John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. It's a weird look, a weird diet. But it's basically just telling us that this guy was not glamorous, not at all. He's a poor guy living in the desert. A guy, I reckon, you could probably confuse for a homeless person. He's not wearing the fancy gear. He's not eating the fancy food in the fancy palace. He's just that guy who who looks like he's a down and out. But his his outfit actually reminds us of somebody else in the Old Testament. We read about the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings 1.8, we read that he was a hairy man, or, or as NIV says, he had a garment of hair, like maybe camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. If you're the kind of person who's read your Old Testament at all, and you suddenly see what's happening here with John the Baptist, and you see what he's wearing, you're going, ooh. Not only is he kind of eat weird stuff, and you know that outfit's not really glamorous, but he's like Elijah. And he's out there in the desert shouting, prepare the way, repent. You'd be thinking, ooh, I've got got an interesting feeling about this. We're supposed to see the connection. John is just like an Old Testament prophet. That's what he is. He's just like an Old Testament prophet. And as he's doing this Old Testament prophet kind of thing, it got quite a crowd. Verse 5, we read that people from Jerusalem and all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. His message was resonating with people. They're saying, have you heard that guy? Which guy? John. Oh, that guy. No, not yet. You're going to come with me? Yeah, let's get down there now. Yeah, let's go and hear him. He's a guy you wanted to go and hear. He's the guy you wanted to go and see. But it it required more than just listening if you were really going to get into what he was on about. Because it ultimately required action. And so verse 6, we read... When they confessed their sins, he baptised them in the Jordan River. So there was a connection there between repentance and the confession of their sins. He called people to acknowledge their sins, how they'd angered God. And then when he'd done that, when they confessed their sins, he baptised them. That's what he did. What he's doing here is still sort of like one foot in the Old Testament. I know it's in the New Testament bit of the Bible, absolutely, right? But just a bit of a a funny hint, quite a bit of what happens in the start of the Gospels is kind of still a bit Old Testament-y. And this is what this is too. Still, Jesus hasn't died and, you know, spoiler alert, but that hasn't happened yet. So we're still in the overlap. We're still sort of Old Testament-y kind of thing. John was doing that sort of stuff here. So it's not exactly like our New Testament baptism. But you can sort of see that it is related, of course. But the point is, it's connected with the confession of sins. And when they spoke of their sins, then they were washed. The word for baptism, which is a really easy Greek word to know, it's called baptizo, 
Sounds pretty similar. You can sound like a nerd. You just a lot, a lot of the words that we have that are fancy words, uh, they're easy. You just sort of go, you know, do a Greek accent. And you sound like you know what you're talking about. But this fancy word, we think of it as being like the, the baptism that we have and all that. It, it, it actually means a little bit more than that. It's kind of like a going down and coming up. It, it's, it's obviously used for water, splash down, splash up. But it's interesting that Jesus talks about his baptism, um, and he's not just talking about this, he's actually talking about going into the earth and coming up, rising. Anyway, fun fact there. But this is all this stuff about baptism, going down, going up. When John baptised, he would have dunked them all the way underwater and they would have come up cleansed. that's That's what the outward sign was doing. But the point was, it wasn't the water that was doing anything magic. All that was happening was that the water was symbolizing what God had already done which is, of course, forgiveness. And that, that's one of the nice things about baptism. It, it gives you a very physical thing. And you can sort of, you can see water. You think, you know, when, I, when you wash your hands, it's a water thing and it's, it's done something. And, and water of baptism is a way of actually saying, God's done something. It's a, it's a clear outward sign in that sense. And it's about what God's done, not us. But you see, Christian baptism also has a connection with God's Old Testament in that it's, a covenant thing. It's, it's a bit like a New Testament version of Old Testament circumcision rites. And that's sort of, we see that in Colossians chapter 2. But it's not quite what's happening here in, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3. But anyway, you see some connections there. But back to the story, we see that some of the people who are having a sticky beak at John the Baptist are not his friends. They're not friendly. Verse 7, we read that when many when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptise, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? We get Jewish leaders of both sorts down there, Pharisees and Sadducees, and they come down to see John, and John is firing back at them. And basically, he's saying to them, what makes you think that you can come here and get baptised when you show no signs of changing? You guys are just like you always are. You're still doing these sorts of looks. And you reckon I'm just going to come down here and give you a bit of a wash and it's all going to be sorted? What made you think that's how it works? What John does is he confronts the hypocritical religious leaders. And he keeps going. He says to them in verse 8, prove by the way you live that you've repented of your sins and turned to God. It's like, prove it. You want to come down here and get baptised and join with a little party? Prove it, he's saying. He says, you guys actually have to change the way you live if you're going to turn back to God. And he hits them hard. I think he hits them extra hard. Why? Because these guys are religious leaders. They know their Old Testament. They've got their Bibles. That they, should, they should pick John... Like, like a nose, you know, you should be able to see it straight away. He is the guy pointing to the Messiah, get on board. But what do they do? They're doing these sorts of things. And John's going, get on board. But then he goes more than that. He says, verse 9, don't just say to each other, oh, we're safe, don't worry about us, mate, because we're descendants of Abraham. John says, that means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. I don't mean to offend you, but, yeah, take offence. You think you're something special because you can pull out your ancestry.com thing, whatever, and show us that you're connected to Abraham. Well, bully for you. Doesn't matter. 
God can use stones to make his people. You think you're that special? John says it means nothing. I kind of like John. He's a guy who just doesn't seem to care. I mean, he cares, but he just says it like it is. It's like, this is my job. I'm an Old Testament prophet. I just tell it like it is. And he says, basically, it doesn't matter what your ancestry is. It doesn't matter, but repentance does. Ancestry doesn't matter, but repentance does. It's the message that the religious leaders really needed to hear. But it's also the message that every religious person here needs to hear. On Tuesday night, we have to do our census, if you haven't already done it. And there's boxes where you tick all sorts of different things, including your religion. I reckon there's a whole bunch of people who say, well, I reckon because I've ticked the religious box, that when I get to heaven, God will say, why should I let you into my heaven? You say, because I ticked the box on the census. And I think it's like, no deal. That, that's not going to work. Plenty of people can say, I am Church of England, you know, even though we, we got rid of that term a long time ago. They can say all this stuff and say, I'm, I'm in with the religious crowd. I've got the religious heritage. I'm a religious kind of guy. But the point is, that even if you are all of those things and more, if you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus, you are not saved. You need to repent of your sins and trust in him. It doesn't matter whether you've got a baptism certificate or a confirmation certificate. You could be a bishop. It doesn't matter. If you don't repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not saved and it's bad news for you. And it's serious because judgment's coming. Verse 10, we read what John said to them. He said, even now... The axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. What does he say? Even now. Uh, He's not talking about 2021. He's actually talking about 25, whatever that time was way, way back then. Right now, he's saying, right now, judgment is is poised by God. It's about to come. It's relevant to this particular time in history. The acts of God's judgment is, is poised at that time in Old Testament because the Old Testament was drawing to a close and the New Testament was coming. And for those who claim to be in the kingdom of God but didn't actually bear fruit, who didn't have a genuine faith in God, judgment was coming. And John's guy is, as John O said, he's the support guy. He warms them up and says, Jesus is coming. Get on board. Repent and believe he's coming. And they might say, no, I'm right. Thanks, mate. I'll tick the box in my my senses. He's saying, judgment is coming. Now, John the Baptist was a bit of a fire and brimstone preacher, as you can see. But so was Jesus. And so should we. And we don't need to talk about this way if, if there's no judgment coming, of course. You could just say, oh, well, I'm going to be a kind of a, a shouty kind of Christian or I'm going to be a, a smiley kind of Christian. Doesn't matter at the end of the day. Oh, no, it actually does. Because at the end of the day, there is judgment. And if judgment is coming, it's unloving to be silent. It's un- it would be unloving for, for John the Baptist to say, come on in, bring your floaties, we'll have a little splash around. And I can say some religious words if you like. Doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter whether you like God or not, or whether you tick the no religion on box on your senses, doesn't matter, just come and have a splash. He could have done all that, it would have been lovely. But it would have been wrong. 
Judgment is coming and therefore it's unloving to be silent. But John also realised that his baptism had a use-by date and was ultimately more of a kind of a red carpet for the star who was really coming. Verse 11, he says, I baptise with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone's coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and to carry his sandals around. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John knew his place. He knew that someone greater was coming. And even the great John the Baptist, and he was a great one, friends. Even the great John the Baptist saw himself as nothing compared to the greatness of the ones coming. He's so humble, he couldn't even be his master's slave. And he couldn't even do the lowly job of carrying around his sandals. John knows that his job is to get everyone and everything ready for the coming person who's going to baptise, not with water, but with something far greater. He's going to baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Sounds like two separate things. More likely it's just the one thing with the one the in the original language. It's the kind of the, the fire of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to bring water. He's going to bring fire. Fire that will purify. The coming one's going to bring purifying fire. It's going to purify, but the process will be intense. And it comes as a result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Many Jews knew that the Holy Spirit was going to come when the Messiah came. And so to hear this would have been pretty exciting. And this is how it would work. Verse 12 says that he's ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork and then he'll clean up the threshing area gathering the wheat into his barn but burning the chaff with ever never ending fire it's a pretty full-on picture of judgment isn't it that's what john the baptist says that jesus will be like what he'll do is he'll take all the stuff that's been harvested from the wheat crop and they'll, they'll throw it up into the air and then the, the fine light chaff that you don't want to eat, that'll all sort of fly away. And the stuff that will be left will be the wheat that you want to keep. And so we'll keep all the wheat over there. And then all the chaff, what's he going to do with that? He's, he's going to burn it up. Pretty intense stuff. It's a pretty full-on picture of judgment, really, isn't it? But that's what John the Baptist says Jesus will be like. What he'll do is he'll, the wheel will go into the barn because that's valuable, it's fit for purpose, it's the good stuff, but all that chaff will be just burnt up. Don't think that Jesus is all about cuddly, smiley, nice stuff. I mean, yes, he is loving and kind and he will lift your burden from you, but not if you reject him. Because if you do, you're under his judgment. Uh, John the Baptist wasn't just a grumpy guy who said, ah, judgment, blah, blah, blah. He actually knew Jesus and who he was and what he was going to do. And his warning was real. Turn to Jesus and don't leave it too late. Don't leave it too late. Did you see what it said about fire? I don't want to miss that. It said never ending. Or other translations say unquenchable it's judgment that never stops 
Well, after that huge introduction, in these last few verses, Jesus steps onto the stage. It's the first time we've seen him in Matthew's Gospel since he was a young kid. But now, at least 25 years later, we see Jesus, the man, ready to launch his ministry. And verse 13, it says that Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptised by John. Jesus heads down from Galilee to the Jordan River. Jordan River. Have we heard that before? Well, it's the second time we've been told it's the Jordan River. Does that matter? Yeah. Jordan River does matter. That was the bit that right, right there was exactly where it was that God's people went into the Promised Land. The Jordan River is the gateway to the Promised Land. It's, it's pretty significant. And I think Matthew wants us to realise, because he says, oh, baptising in the Jordan River. Oh, Jesus, in the Jordan River. He wants us to go, ah, ah, Jordan River. Yeah, got it. Click. This is this moment. We're on the edge of the new era for God's people. And Jesus goes down there to be baptised by John. What? Isn't baptism connected to the confession of sins? Isn't it about repentance? Isn't it about saying, sorry God that I sinned? And so why would Jesus want to get baptised? It's kind of weird. Oh yeah, sorry God I sinned. Oh hang on, I'm sinless. Ah, oh, forgot that. No, really? No, there's got to be something going on there. But you can see why it's a bit weird. And John realises it's a bit weird. He says in verse 14, he tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptised by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? I reckon I'd do a similar thing. It's like if, if Jesus walked in and sat in the, the front of my church and, and, and said, oh, Jody, uh, teach me the Bible. I'd be like, <laughs> please come up here, not me, not me. I want to listen, I want to listen, I want to listen. John's saying, you want me to baptise you? Really? No, 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 no. And Jesus says, yeah, I want you to baptise me. See, John knew who Jesus was. He knew he was the Messiah, the one who is to come, the one he was not worthy to carry his sandals or be his slave. But Jesus says, verse 15, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptise him. Jesus was able to convince John to baptise him because he basically said it's what God wants to happen. It, it, to do so is more literally to fulfil all righteousness. See, John the Baptist, sorry, God the Father, God the Father wants Jesus the Son to be baptised in preparation for what's to happen. And in fact, Jesus is baptised in order to serve his Father, to serve him, as the servant king. The king serves and is obedient to his heavenly father. That's very important here. But something else. By being baptised like everybody else did. You know what Jesus did? He says, I'm like you. I'm one of you. John baptised all you guys. Yeah, I, I'm without sin. You'll, you'll get that later. But the point is, I'm one of you. I'm a human like you. I am like Israel who needs to come to this point of turning back to God. And I am he. And so Jesus is baptised to serve his father. But it also shows he's ready to play the part of the Messiah, which will be tested in the chapter that's going to come next. But after that, what happens is very significant. Verse 16, we read that after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, 
The heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. I reckon John probably baptized a lot of people and he thought, oh, this is going to be different. I'm sure this is going to be different. I'm sure this is going to be different. And Jesus goes down and Jesus comes up and and the heavens are open and a dove and it's like, I told you, I'm expecting that to be the case. And it did. Jesus was buried in the water, raised out of the water, and the Spirit of God came down like a dove. When you think of the dove, it reminds you a little bit about after the ark, that the dove came, that, that time when, when there was judgment of water. There's water here as well. Uh, maybe that's a connection, I don't know. But the thing is, this water signified the start of the ministry of Jesus as heaven is opened up. And it makes even more sense when we see the final verse. It says, and a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. (laughs) The voice from heaven says that Jesus is his beloved son. God says that Jesus is his beloved son. So God's son, God's son. Ah, he's saying that he's God's son. Yeah. God has spoken from the heavens, declared to everybody at the Jordan that God's son is here. And and have a look at how it links up with Isaiah. Isaiah 42 verse 1, it says, Look at my servant whom I strengthen or I uphold. He is my chosen one who pleases me, brings me joy. I have put my spirit upon him and he'll bring justice to the nations. Join the dots. Draw the line. This is what's happening right here. At this crucial point in Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus is this guy from Isaiah. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. And we see that he's the son of God. All of this happened at this crucial moment in the life of Jesus. This is his coronation, I suppose you'd say. It's the moment when his public messianic ministry kicks off. God himself from heaven has said, he's my man. He's my son. He brings me joy. And from that moment, right there, Jesus, who has shown that he's one of us by getting baptized like we did, is at the same time human, one of us, and at the same time the beloved son of God all happening right here and this spectacular moment sees the two come together and the moment we've been waiting for has come right here this is not weeks or months or even years that they've been waiting it's decades and centuries and here it is with that splash it's the moment because it's time for the promised king to be revealed the promised kingdom of heaven it's what daniel saw in chapter 2 verse 44 you know daniel lions dan all that stuff here's what he said he said in verse 44 during the reigns of those kings the god of heaven the kingdom of heaven will the god of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered it will crush all those kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever We've got to read Daniel and then see Matthew 3 and say, ah, that's what he's talking about right there. 
See, when John the Baptist declared that the kingdom of heaven is near, this is what he was talking about. After centuries of waiting, the time has come. Jesus has arrived. And for them, it was time to come to Jesus. For us, it's time to come to Jesus if you haven't come already. And if that's the case, then what are you waiting for? Let me pray.